That's what she said. That's what she said. That's what she said. That's what she said. Well, that's what she said. Welcome to That's What She Said, conversations with interesting people from the world of sports, music, comedy, and more, talking about their lives, careers, successes, and failures. Welcome to the latest edition of That's What She Said with Sarah Spain. This week's guest, Dan Orlovsky, an ESPN analyst and former quarterback who played 13 seasons in the NFL, loved this conversation because we hear a lot about starting QBs. We hear about the life of the stars, but it was really cool to talk to somebody about what it's like to fight for a spot year after year, um, what it's like to be a star at the high school and college level, and then have to humble yourself into working towards a position at the pro level. Uh, the infamous uh, moment of his life that he both regrets and learned from and uh, a lot of good conversations in the uh, speed round where I, I held his feet to the fire on least favorite teammate and least favorite coach and all that stuff. So a great conversation with Dan, and I really hope you guys enjoy it. That's what she said. Happy to welcome in teammate on ESPN and former quarterback who played 13 seasons in the NFL, Dan Orlovsky, drafted by the Lions, also played for the Texans, Colts, Bucks, and Rams. And now he dominates your social media and TV breaking down film and trying to teach those of us who don't really know football a little bit more about the game. I'm so excited you came on because, you know, we hear a ton about the life of starting quarterbacks, um, and we see analysts all the time, but we don't really get behind the scenes on either either one, backup quarterbacks or um, people who are actually breaking down the film and trying to make the game a little bit more accessible for those who didn't play it. So I'm super excited to chat. And I found out in our research for this that uh, we have the same birthday, so we're both awesome. Ooh, <laughs> the birthday thing is an incredible time. And uh, well, it, it is a pleasure to be with you, and uh, I'm looking forward to having some fun. Yeah, you are a couple years younger than me, but um, we're both Leos, <laughs> so I think that explains a lot about our incredible success. Um, <laughs> let's go back to high school. You are a starting quarterback as of your sophomore year. You win a state championship. Was your life as a Connecticut high school quarterback sort of the stereotypical prom king, big man on campus kind of vibe? Certainly in my own head. Uh, <laughs> yeah, you know, the town that I give, Connecticut is not renowned for its high school football, but the town that I grew up in and the pocket of Connecticut that I grew up in is pretty big in high school football. It's kind of known as the Valley. Uh, and there's some decent high school football there, certainly for the New England area. And so um, becoming the quarterback at, at my high school that I went to, which was the public high school in town, Shelton, was a pretty – Big deal, like I said, in my own head and my own accomplishment. And then to kind of have the three-year stretch that we had and culminate it with a state championship was, you know, I was a kid. I was, gosh, like a, a 10-year-old or an 11-year-old. My dad was a coach on the team, like an assistant coach type thing. Okay. And they went and won the state championship then. And I was on the sideline as like a ball boy. And I remember it being like, oh, man, I want to do that. Like, that's all I want to do in my life is go to play high school at Shelton and win a state championship. So to do it, yeah, it was uh, it was uh, really cool in the moment. And certainly, like I said, like, I thought I was the the coolest dude ever. There's something to be said for having a parent who's a coach, right, and pushing you. And there are a lot of incredibly successful athletes who do have very involved parents. So there's times when I look back on my child and my parents didn't really care about sports, but they were supportive where I'm like, I wish they'd been like a little bit more into it because they might have, you know, made me get a little bit crazier about it and be even more successful. Did that work out well for you for the most part, having a dad who was a coach and was super knowledgeable and into it? Or were there times when that was a conflict? Um, well, my dad actually stopped coaching the high school when I got there out of like a whole, Hey, I don't, I don't want to be, I just, I don't want to be the, the the reason that people say that you maybe become the starting quarterback or whatnot. I'm just, you know, I'll walk away from it, which was cool. Um, in regards to like the pushing or the, the teaching of a work ethic and all that stuff, I sit here now and it's certainly paid off in those moments. I, you, I was, we were very much the stereotypical, like too much from the dad resistance from the son. Like I was really open to work. I was really open to learning about hard work and wanting to take it to the next level. It became in a way an obsession of my dad's to impact or 
you know, kind of impart that upon me. And then it became an obsession of mine, the work ethic. And that was really like the differentiator for me. Because honestly, Sarah, I was never, people sometimes like don't believe this in a way, but I was never like the the athletic kid. I was a good athlete where I could pick up a baseball, football, basketball, golf club, whatever, and, and hold my own. But I was super slow and super uncoordinated <laughs> and super unathletic. And so that I had to, I had to like really the work ethic was a big deal for me to kind of change a lot of that. Um, so it, it it certainly was one of the great things my father taught me. How far into your high school career were there aspirations or a belief that you could compete at the college level? You know, probably my back into my sophomore year was when we made a highlight tape and sent it out to schools. There, that's kind of ages you in a, wit, in a bit, a highlight tape. Right. <laughs> um, and sent it out to school. VHS. And schools started to respond pretty good. And we sent it from, you know, kind of lower level schools to the big time big 10 schools and some sec schools and acc schools and they all started to respond pretty good and get calls from coaches and letters and whatnot that's when i was like okay i don't know how serious this is but uh, it's pretty serious and then i ended up going to my junior i ended up going to one of the nike camps like the traveling nike camps around the country and there were some bigger name guys there. We, it was at Penn State. And I remember going there and throwing it and whatnot and walking away going, yeah, I could throw it with, with, with these guys, if not better than all of them. So you end up choosing UConn. Um, according to the, the research I did, it was because you wanted to kind of change the program versus going somewhere bigger like a Michigan State. Um, take me through your mindset there because that's not, you know, usually my, my decision for collegiate sports was wanting to be – you know, small fish, big pond and push myself. It seems like you were more interested in maybe ensuring a starting position or ensuring that you would have a, a, a some sort of effect on the program itself. Yeah, there's a little more layers to it. So I originally committed to Michigan State and was going to go play there. I like really wanted to go play in the Big Ten and have the opportunity. UConn was the first school to recruit me, first school to recruit me, first school to come to in person, first school to offer me a scholarship. Uh, but at that time, the, the program was 1AA football, and I didn't pay much attention to it. I wanted to go to Boston College in the absolute worst way. That was my favorite team as a kid. They were the first offer for me, UConn-wise, and I didn't pay much attention to them. But I committed to Michigan State. And then my um, senior, my junior year of high school, um, about, gosh, almost three-quarters of the way through the season – Michigan State had this kid named Jeff Smoker that was playing as a true freshman, and he was lighting it up. And I wanted to play early, but he was he was ripping it. And I was like, well, dude, I don't want to go there and sit for two years. Like, I, I want to play early. Cause, and this kid, as a true freshman, playing really good. So I decommit, and within the next couple of weeks, I take a visit to Purdue. And I love Purdue. Drew Brees was my host on my visit. I loved it. And I came home after the weekend and it was a um, Monday morning, and I told my dad, this was a Sunday night, but I had told my dad on Sunday evening, hey, I'm going to commit to Purdue tomorrow morning. I'm gonna, let's call them tomorrow morning and commit. I woke up, and that morning news broke that Kyle Orton was committing to Purdue, who was one of like the highly rated guys of my class, top five, you know, rivals, rankings, and whatnot. And I said, well, I'm not going to go to Purdue because they're getting Orton. And again, I wanted to kind of ensure a really good chance to start early. So the following weekend, I took a visit to Virginia. Loved it. Matt Schaub was my host. George Welsh was the head coach. Sat in on a Sunday morning with him, and he kept calling me Matt, not Dan. Mm. And so um, <laughs> I called my dad from the airport. I'm like, dude, this guy doesn't even know my name. I'm not going to go there, although I wanted to. Long story short, Boston College never ended up offering me, so I landed from Virginia, and I called my dad. I said, hey, I'm going to commit to UConn and he was like yeah no shot and I got home I got on the phone and I called coach Edsel Randy Edsel was the head coach there I said hey I'm coming and he put me on speakerphone in the conference room for all the coaches and I said hey I'm coming and my dad picked up the other line upstairs and he's like no he's not and he's like this is not happening this and that and he came running downstairs and he's like you're not going there you're selling yourself short you're scared of competition and whatnot and um you know, we didn't talk for like two weeks. And at the end of the day, I just told him like, listen, if 
if I'm what you thought you raised, you got to let me make this decision. Like you got to yeah. trust that. And there was the appealing thing. Like the, the main reason why I wanted to go to UConn, other those variables was uh, everyone thought it was crazy. No one thought it could get <laughs> done. I kind of wanted to prove everybody wrong in a way. So, and it gave me the opportunity to play early and, and certainly be a part of the, the program change in a way, but it was just more of like, no, everyone thought it was crazy. So that was the really big draw. And I liked the, the fact that Coach Etta was kind of like trying to do something everyone thought was impossible. So I was kind of a kiss in high school, overachiever. If everybody that I trusted thought something was crazy, I would not have done it. Is that an insight into your personality even back then? Oh, for sure. I love like, I just, um, I don't know why I'm just wired that way where it's like, if you tell me that's impossible or that's stupid or you'll never do it or whatnot, it's going to get my full attention and effort for sure. If it's sports, no matter if it's anything like that. I mean, I have four kids. People probably think that's crazy. Um, but yeah, that's just kind of how I am. I love that. That's so fascinating. Um, and probably speaks to your ability to play the position and, and lead others and everything else. So you get to UConn. You know, you never know if uh, if the records have been updated, but uh, according to the interwebs, which are never wrong, you still have the school record for pass completions, pass attempts, yards passing, touchdown passes, interceptions, total plays, and total yards. Does that sound right? I think the interceptions one wrong, probably. Oh, okay, I, I, yeah, that's the one. Yeah, that's that the might one. be the only one that's wrong. <laughs> of course. <laughs> yeah, I think those are all accurate, yeah. I mean, it's not... There are some good players over the years, but nothing. It's not a renowned quarterback, quarterback providing program or building program. Don't sell yourself short. You're a tremendous. <laughs> um, so, uh, so you you're at UConn, and you know, despite it not being a massive football program, you end up getting drafted in the fifth round. Where did you expect to be drafted, if at all? Oh man, this is when the stories get great. So, <laughs> going, in, you know, I had a really, I had a good junior year of college, and um, you know, going that off season, you know, throughout the year, going into my senior, year, I was on Mel Kiper's big board, as high as like, I want to say somewhere in the like low teens, and uh, you know, talk of being a first round draft pick. I almost came out as a junior, whatnot. I go back, and then throughout the senior senior, I have an okay senior season, not as good as my junior one, not bad, but just okay. And so I had the chance to go to the, the Senior Bowl, and I'm still on Mel Kuyper's big board. I go to the Senior Bowl, and within the first, like, 48 hours of the week, things aren't going good. Like, I'm not throwing it well. I'm not handling it well. It's too big a deal for me. I'm taking snaps from underneath center and taking seven-step drops that I've never done before. North Turner was our head coach, and I just don't perform. I, I have a bad week. And one of the nights, I think it was, like, the second or third night of that Senior Bowl week, you know, in the hotel, they have a, a player's lounge set up where all these guys can gather. Again, this is I mean, 15 years ago, but all the like, guys, the players can gather and spend time together and whatnot. And I walk in, and it's a sports center special, and they, you know, Mel's doing a piece from the Senior Bowl. Hey, Mel, what player's stock has been hurt the most? And Mel just crushed me. I mean, oh. just crushed me. He's And literally right as, right as I walk in, it was like one of those clips from a movie where you like you would walk in and be like, okay, this is awkward. I'll walk out. <laughs> Record scratch. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, you know, he was just like, not, he's not, he'll never play in the NFL. He's not good enough. This is a story of the small school kid and he's not good enough to be with the big boys and all that stuff. And so super cool moment. But, um, you know, going into the draft, I honestly thought my agents had kind of told me anywhere from second to sixth round, uh, which seemed to be uh, odd because I was like, oh, so anywhere. I mean, essentially, because the round then, the draft was still seven rounds then, like it is now, but broken up into different time frames. But I thought maybe second or third round. I didn't think fifth round. Uh, it was an emotional experience for me, the draft and whatnot, kind of a great day and a bitter day at the same time because it didn't work out the way I wanted to. But um, now fifth, fifth round, it was certainly, it was certainly later than I had expected. How do you process that in the moment? Right. Because, um, I think we all have athletic or even life experiences where in the end, we know the result is still positive, but the expectations maybe mm -hmm. temper our enthusiasm about it in that moment. Were you still able to be overwhelmed by this dream coming true? Or did it take some time to be able to adjust to expectations? No, it took time. I didn't handle it well. Like, 
when when I was drafted, the first round was just um, it was it was a two day experience. Rounds one, two, and three were on Saturday. Four, five, six, and seven were on Sunday. And so Saturday starts, and I'm expecting to get drafted on Saturday. It was a whole 13, 14, 15-hour affair. And the the back end of the third round, I had a couple teams call me, hey, the Seahawks actually called me and told me they were going to take me, and they took David Green, a lefty quarterback out of Georgia, instead. But I remember that night um, – the Broncos had the last pick of the third round, and they took uh, Maurice Claret, who had been a year off of football. And I remember seeing the pick happen, taking my phone and shattering against the wall. Because I was like, dude, I'm the kid who does everything right. I work as hard as mm-hmm. anyone has ever done at this, blah, blah, this and that. And Claret was a kid who had some baggage off the field. And so I took it in a personal way. I shattered my phone against the wall. I'm emotional. My dreams are shattered, all that stuff. It's the worst day of my life, and I uh, wake up the next morning, realize how stupid it was to shatter my phone, um, <laughs> figure out a way yeah, to get Yeah, razors are expensive. Yeah, and, and <laughs> figure that? out a way to get uh, <laughs> get to a cell phone store, get a new phone, call my agent, blah, 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 and I end up going in the, in the fifth round like you had mentioned. And, like, in the moment, I was still upset. Like, getting the call, I was, like, kind of like, oh, yeah, great. And then within a couple minutes of it, kind of hanging up and the phone call being over, the emotion hits you. And um, I think a big thing that I try to get across to people too is like, it's not just a one-year thing or a six-month thing. Like a lot of us who get that draft call, that's like a 10-year work moment where like you've been working at it for since you were 10, 11, 12 years old. And it all, all of a sudden culminates into a five-minute phone call and it's really emotional for you and your family, your friends have kind of been a part of your journey. It's, and it's, it's not a short time frame. Yeah. Well, so eventually you come around to the fact that you are now on a team and you, your dream has been realized. Uh, and unlike a lot of other backup quarterbacks, you got thrust into action, um, you know, right away. First season in the NFL after Jeff Garcia got hurt. Um, and then you played in a couple contests, uh, including Thanksgiving Day. So what's the pressure like mm. for somebody who, um, you know, as a starter, you're, of course, it's going to build, build, build in training camp, in preseason, until the season starts. As a backup, you know, you never really know when your time is going to come. And for, was that your first start, Thanksgiving Day? Or was that your first uh, playing time in a regular season game? No, my first playing time, I in a regular season game, I'm pretty sure my first playing time was uh, against your hometown, I believe, the mm. Bears, right? Are you from Chicago? I am. Yeah, against the Bears. Um, early on, like week three or week four, Joey Harrington was our starter, and he struggled. I think he threw like five picks that day, and that was my first game action. I remember I threw a scene to Roy Williams and Mike Brown. Is that the name? Mm-hmm. The safety? Yeah, really Mike smart Brown. player. One of my favorite players of all time. Yeah, great player for a you know a good five, six, seven-year stretch. Mike Brown absolutely laid Roy out. And that was my first kind of introduction <laughs> to the NFL. Be like, oh, that ball's got to get out a little sooner. Um, <laughs> uh, but I played a bunch that year just because we were a really bad team. Yeah, so um... – and and then so you you're 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 starting your NFL career you you understand that you're a backup you're putting in the work but you're getting some time and then the next two seasons you're a third string 0607 no regular season snaps what's that like because i think there is the long held joke of the best job in sports is a backup quarterback you get paid mm-hmm. you practice you work out you hang out with your buddies you get to be an NFL player but you never get hit and you know you don't have to worry about being criticized or not playing well but what's it actually like uh, obviously, if you made it that far, you're incredibly competitive and talented. Yeah, I mean, it's it's. I try to. I don't need to tell people all the greats about it. It's awesome, right? It's, I mean, you're in the NFL. You make a great living. Like, I think people get that conception. Um, but it's all. There's also parts of it that suck. Just to be honest with you, because you know, I there's 53 guys on a team, and for the great majority of every single week everybody knows that there's a solid chance they're going to play. Like they're going to get on the field at some point, uh, whether it's special teams or in a backup role or starters. And every week 
I had to, and backups have to understand, like, there's a solid chance you're not going to play, yet you still have to do the work. Like, you still have to get yourself ready. I had to do the same stuff as our starters. I had to study the same, if not more. I had to watch the same tape, if not more. I had to practice at the same level, if not greater, because my window was so small, especially as a fifth-round pick. Like, my window for opportunity was going to come one time. And if I wasn't ready for that one time, they were going to go find some other fifth-round pick. You know, it's and so it was hard. I tell people, in a way, you have to brainwash yourself. Like, you have to brainwash yourself to believe that what you're doing day after day after day after day for years will at some point pay off. You go back to, in a way being a high school kid or a college kid with the dream of getting to the NFL and all the time and effort you put in the weight room and the gym and the running and the working out, you believe that at some point that'll pay off. It's the same with the backup in a way where like you just have to brainwash yourself. Okay. It's Wednesday. I have to do this, 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 and this to get ready to play. And then as you, as you go six, seven, eight, nine weeks in a row without playing, it's super, super easy to fall into a, Oh, I don't have to do that. I don't have to do that. I won't have to be ready to play. Mm. But then the opportunity to play is going to come, and you're going to be like, oh, my goodness, I'm not ready to play. So it's a big challenge. I, that's why I know people laugh at, like, the dollars that guys get paid, especially backup nowadays. Why is this guy a backup? What? It's a really, really difficult thing to master in a way to be ready to play a game without being given the opportunity to be ready to play that game. So – um, those two years taught me a lot. We had Josh McCowan on our team then as well. Um, but it taught me a lot about continuing to go through my preparation and being ready because the time was going to come for me to have the chance to get on the field. Yeah. You mentioned, um, you know, sometimes it seems like it's not a super necessary position. And you look at a team like the Eagles who back to back years have a guy like Foles who can step in and do that job and it completely changes their season. And then you look at other teams who lose their mm-hmm. starter, and, I mean, that's it. You just, like the mm-hmm. Niners, for instance. Jimmy G goes down, and everyone's like, well, we'll see him next year, right? There's no, no there's doubt. no even expectation of anything beyond uh, let's rebuild and work till next year. So you mentioned McCown. You know, he was in Chicago for a while, and he was a little bit of a quarterback whisperer for Jay Cutler, as much as that's possible, which is to say not a lot. Um, but he just he gets rave reviews everywhere he goes for being a great either backup or starter or just a good guy in the room. What, what was your relationship with him like? Is, is it uh, everything that everyone makes it out to be? Oh, I'm, it's tough to quantify. I mean, Josh is one of the best people and teammates I've ever come across. Josh has an incredible way of, and I wish I was more like him. Like when you talk with Josh, his, his attention and his thoughts are solely on your conversation. I wish I was more like it. Like he is totally invested in the moment with you. Um, and he's got an incredibly selfless selfless way and thought process about it. You hear all the time, like, oh, this person never thinks of himself or this person truly puts the, the interests of others above theirs. We say that about a lot of people, and it's probably not accurate. Josh is like the imagery of it, where he um, truly feels his greatest strength is when he's there to be a support, to be a help, to invest, to give insight, to encourage. That's where he feels he's at his absolute strength. And he believes that um, he's fully convinced that that's his, that that's his role. Like that's why he's here is to um, do that for others. And whether you're competing with him for the backup quarterback job, or you're the fourth receiver or a backup D tackle, like, this dude invests so much of himself and everyone else. And, uh, you know, it's one of those guys where after you come across him, you're so thankful because you realize in a lot of ways transformed your life. You know, you mentioned uh, the, the difficulty of, of being prepared and being ready. And then all of a sudden you got to go uh, t- to me. Th- it, it probably very much depends on the person themselves, but for you, and I think enough time has probably passed that, you know, you can say this honestly without fear of, you know, retribution or, or anything else, but were you hoping for an opportunity? You, you never want your starter to be injured, but were you hoping for a chance or were you one of the people whose fear sort of says, I'm comfortable here. If I never get thrust into action, I'll be able to stay comfortable. Oh, that's a great question. Uh, 
You know, I think early on, you certainly wanted the opportunity to play because that's what you were working for. And I had some friends like who early on, like got the chance to play. I mean, I was drafted the same year as like Ryan Fitzpatrick. I remember Fitzy got to play as a rookie and I was like, wait, Fitzy's balling as a rookie, but I didn't necessarily get the opportunity to play like that. Or then Matt Castle got the chance to play early on on a good football team. And I was like, dude, Castle is playing on the Patriots and he's lighting the world on fire. Like, where's that opportunity? So you kind of, you kind of look at it with that viewpoint of like, where's my chance? Where's my opportunity? How come these guys got to it? Um, and then a really, a real thing, and I've talked about this, happens is when you go an extended period of time, at least for me it was the case, doubt becomes a very real thing. And you start to doubt yourself, your abilities, your am, am I good enough? Do I belong? I haven't played in three years. Like, it, do I, am I still the same player? And you have to very much so like control your mind and get to a point where I am still that guy. I, you know, and and I can still go play. And then, you know, the reality for the NFL is, and a lot of guys struggle with with this, whether during their career or post career, a lot of guys struggle to accept their role there because every guy gets the NFL, most guys, except for like the ridiculously out talented ones. Every guy gets there because of their belief that they're the best, that they can do anything. They have this alpha dog, you know, I, I'll do anything mentality. And then you get to the NFL and sometimes your role gets defined as something else other than the star. Right. And guys struggle with accepting that role and struggle with thinking that this guy is better or they're less. And, you know, I got to a point probably in my uh, just about my sixth year or so maybe where I got the chance to play and I played good in games and won some games. And I thought free agency was going to break me off and play me as a, pay me as a starter. And here was my chance. Like, here was the time I had been working for it. The NFL told me no. Like, free agency told me, no, you're just a backup. And I had a, I was at a very, very much so at a crossroads. Like, okay, are you going to accept this role as a backup? Or are you going to kind of fight it like so many other guys have? And, you know, I was fortunate to have the kind of the, uh, I guess if we want to call it maturity or whatnot, to accept it and play for another six or seven years after that. You know, you had me thinking, we've been talking in, uh, in, in Spain and Fitz and the radio show lately, and I've been sort of comparing what I saw from Jimmy Butler, who was a, a low draft pick, Backup worked his way to a max contract superstar level and now has been a completely different guy, according to people in the locker room, and has had issues at a couple teams with Antonio Brown. Also not a high pick, hard, hard worker, impressed everybody with his want to, and then now becomes a max player, big money superstar, and has his issues with teammates and coaches and, and everything else. What do you think is more difficult uh, based on maybe your own experiences or looking at people around you? being maybe a little bit more of an unassuming player who becomes a superstar and suddenly has to deal with the money and the big head and the ego without having played that role at the high school and collegiate level as well, because neither of those two guys were the the man at the lower levels or the opposite where you're used to being your high school star, your college star, and then you get humbled by the, by the pros. Mm. You know, I, I always think it's great. Obviously both are, are things to be proud of in a way, but I always believe it's awesome that, you kind of are self-made in a way where, you know, everyone has their doubters and, and you were one of the people to kind of beat the doubt or overcome the doubt um, and, and kind of prove to a lot of people and really times to yourself um, that you are capable. I say this a lot about the NFL. You've probably heard this and it could be applied for all kinds of sports and whatnot is I say that the NFL and fame is an incredible mistress and you can fall in love with it quickly or over time and it can destroy your life in a way and we see it time and time and again with sports and and players and athletes and I'm not saying the Jimmy Butler or the AB situations are that but um, when you when you hear people talk about them from their time past and then where they are now the only thing that has changed in those guys lives that is tangible is the fame and the dollars and so um, I credit them for the, the accomplishment, I credit them for getting there, um, but you just, it, in in a way, you question, okay, who's around you? Uh, where's, you know, who's impacting your life to make sure this stuff doesn't happen type things. But 
Now, I always say, man, if you can go and become your own, your self-made, that, that's an awesome, awesome accomplishment. So you um, get your first start uh, in 2008 against the Vikings, and your stat line is great. Twelve, I mean, good. 12 of 21, 150 yards, a touchdown, no turnovers. But this is when the infamous safety occurs. So Nothing early in the first exciting quarter, happened in that game. Nothing. Nothing <laughs> exciting. <laughs> so you accidentally run out the back of your own end zone. You get a safety. You're sort of surprised in the moment until you realize, oh, man, I'm an idiot. And that turns out to be the margin of victory. It's part of a winless season, which makes it all the all the worse. So, like, you know, I have um, this Super Bowl thing in my past that I've talked about on the podcast before that at the time was well-intended and actually well-received, but now 10 years, 11 years later is only used by people on the Internet to make me feel bad or because they're judging or they don't know the real story, and it gets really frustrating to me. And so recently when I saw yet another person mention the safety to you on the Internet, I was like, oh, my God, this has got to be so annoying for him because I know what it feels like. (laughs) The only thing with yours is it's a public event. I don't really know whether people think they're being clever and they just don't realize everybody sends you that, whereas with mine, I know they're intending to be an like they're they're trying to be an me. Um, how do you react to that? Because I think you're very clever about making yourself the butt of the joke sometimes when it's when it's appropriate and when it's and when it's funny. But when people aren't creative or interesting in bringing it up, does it ever get to you? Uh, does it get to me? I, I think for like 98 percent of me in the time. No, there's certainly times there in there where I just roll my eyes and I'm like, dude, that plate doesn't make me a dumb person or doesn't like take away from my ability to tell you what's happening like so you know part of it is because you know I played quarterback for my whole life so you were in like the spotlight or the cameras and interviews and whatnot so there was there was uh, attention or pressure on you from that early age and there was always people who told you you stunk or that you suck or you're not good enough like there was always people commenting even before Twitter on on sidelines of games and whatnot and then you know, I played for a long time, and so I've, I've always – I literally, because of sports, I've always had people tell you that you suck. And so it's much more prevalent now that it's on Twitter. I look at it like this. Um, if that is the the single worst moment for me, I'm okay. Like, I'm okay. Right. I, I try to get people – I don't try to get people to understand, but I, I, like, I look at it as – Okay, I made it to the NFL. I'm one. I'm I'm in the top one percent ever, and then I played an even smaller amount, and then I played uh, for a decade plus an even smaller amount. The very next week, we were on the road at Houston. Same situation. Uh, we got the ball in the three yard line. I threw a 97 yarder to Calvin for a touchdown. So I just look at it as a really good opportunity for me to be honest about it and be like, yeah, that was really stupid. That moment was really stupid. <laughs> I know I'm not a stupid person. Um, I believe that the fact that I played for another eight years after that or nine years after that proves that I'm not a stupid player. Um, But I also laugh at it like, yeah, it was dumb. And it's a good opportunity for me to be like, um, if someone watches that and goes, man, I like Dan Orlovsky and what he says. I think he's really bright. But man, that was was a bad moment. But it doesn't let it define him or he doesn't let it become who he was or he overcame it. I don't want my kids to be able to look at it and be like, listen, you're going to fall down. You're going to knock down, get knocked down. You're going to have adversity or whatnot, but you can overcome it. And like, I, again, uh, I, I played for like nine years. I'm married to a beautiful girl with four awesome kids. Like if that is my real big flub in life, I'm totally cool with that. Right. I mean, again, it came as a professional quarterback in the NFL, which yeah. is, which is, uh, in order to make that mistake, you already have to have achieved so much to even be given the chance to make that mistake. Uh, it was part of a winless season, though. What is that like? Um, and, and probably it's a different feeling for a backup than you know the starter or the star to feel like they're a part of it or a, maybe a bigger contributor to the lack of success. But um, there haven't been very many of those. Uh, mm. What does it actually feel like? Uh, it feels like, um, I, I kind of equate it to this. It's almost like every single day you wake up and you're going to awake, you know, Mm. when like we've all been to awake or the most of us have been to awake where someone passes away. And when you walk into the wake to go pay your respects and whatnot, like no one wants to make eye contact. You don't want to talk to anybody. This is a miserable experience. I just want to be in and out. 
just to make sure that I showed my face and everyone knows I'm not a bad person or whatnot, you know, like you have those thoughts like, okay, that's what it was like going to work every single day. Like it was Mm. this awful experience that you don't wish on anybody because, you know, just like there's, you can't take away the good things that you accomplish in your life. You can't take away the bad either. Like you can't take that away. We have to own that. Our names are attached to it forever. And so it's a it's an awful, awful time that you dread going and being a part of every single day. And so it's a challenge. And it was a challenge in the moment. And it's something that, you know, now that I'm, you know, 10 plus years removed from being a part of it, you know, Sarah, to be honest with you, in a way, I feel bad about it. Like, I, I've, I've publicly apologized to Lions <laughs> fans because I'm like, I'm bummed that I was a part of making them be a part of that like you know and so um it was a it was a really really difficult experience it's one of those where you get far removed from it you learned a lot about yourself and your teammates and guys that were friends that are no longer friends guys that uh, maybe weren't friends that became friends through it like you it's a if you use it the right way you can learn a lot from it which I did Awesome. That's such a great attitude for, for something that sucks and that you will be reminded of by uh, Lions fans uh, forever. Hey, everybody, don't forget to go to ESPN and Apple Podcasts and subscribe to That's What She Said with Sarah Spain so you always have the latest episode. Don't forget to rate and review it as well and tell all your friends how awesome it is. All right, so you had a couple good starts with the Colts in 2011. You signed with the Bucks in 2012. And this I'm sort of fascinated by because um, I probably should, but the the intricacies of NFL contracts are still, um, you know, I'm still somewhat learning. The Bucks signed you to a two-year contract in March. The next year they cut you, but then four days later they re-sign you. Is that essentially them saying, we don't want you at the price that we have you on? We're going to cut you, which formally ends the contract, but we don't believe that you have a lot of other options and that you'll come back to us for less. No doubt. Yeah. I remember because, you know, that first year I was with them, it was just me and Josh Freeman as our quarterback and Josh was coming off, you know, solid years. And that first year that we were together, like had a really good stretch of good ball, but he's, that's when he started to have some off the field issues. Like Josh had some demons. He fought off the field. And so, um, they had kind of expressed to me, like, listen, this was after the NFL kind of changed their, their quarterback rule and all that stuff. And they had said, we're going to draft a kid relatively somewhat early. And we want to keep three, but we can't keep you as the third, uh, as a, a potential third quarterback at your number. So we're going to cut you and uh, we'll bring you back. And it was very much like, yeah, we know this is, this is your, probably your best option financially and whatnot. Um, so that's for sure. You've got it right on the right on the dot. That's how it worked out. And they brought me back, and you know, it was an interesting year. <laughs> so um, you didn't officially retire till 2017. Um, during that stretch, when you didn't have set gigs and when you were bouncing around, um, was there a thought to go play elsewhere? Did you ever want to play outside the NFL? How much were you tied to the idea of, I want to play football till the wheels fall off versus as soon as the opportunities for the best I can get kind of run out, I'm ready to move on. Yeah, I was, um, listen, I love football and I, I, I was the guy that loved the grind of it. Like I, from an early age, that's what I talked about with my father and the work ethic. And I had told myself when I fell out of love with the grind, that's when I was going to be done. I was not like a, Hey, I'm just going to play till the wheels fall off. I was never going to play outside of the NFL. I would have never gone anywhere else to a different league and played. I was really like, when this is done, this is done. Um, I almost retired in the summer of 2014. Uh, I had just gone through training camp. wasn't fun anymore. Um, I was back with the Lions, um, and I just wasn't performing it the way I wanted to, and my love for it really started to wane was coming off of years of being on bad teams and all that stuff. And it was just, I was getting to that point and my wife talked me out of it one night in training camp, sitting on the couch. Um, she would just, you know, kind of made me question, like, are you sure you want to do that? Like, are you really ready for that and all that? And she was supportive, but she, you know, opened my eyes to a bunch of different questions within it and, and stuck it out. And honestly, 2014 was one of my favorite years ever, but I was very comfortable being, 
uh, I was very comfortable getting to the point where, like, all right, when it's over, it's over. Like, I'm, I don't need to call my agent 27 times to see if he's gotten an update for a team for a workout. I was never going to be the guy that, okay, here um, you've got, you're going to be one of seven guys to go out and have a workout with this team, and we're going to pick from one of you type things. So, um, no, when it was done, I was comfortable with it being done. It's a good feeling, I'm sure. Um, let's do a quick NFL uh, speed round. Favorite teammate. Oh my goodness! Uh, favorite teammate is probably Matthew Stafford. You know, we became really good friends. Uh, was just with him recently. I think the thing that I admire about him the most is he's got an incredible ability to be the guy, meaning he's the guy. He's one of the ten best in the world. He's the face of a franchise, multi multi millionaire, and he's got the ability to be a guy where. He's just chilling in the locker room, shorts and T-shirts, jeans and T-shirt. Let's go out, hang out, and have a bite to eat type guy. So um, he's probably one of my all-time favorites. And then just the competitiveness that he's got inside of him is is really kind of second to none of guys I've been across. That's awesome. Uh, it's good to hear, especially for a guy who's obviously made a ton of money and had success, but um, you know keeps kind of not being able to achieve with that team in the way that a lot of people would hope. Um, who's your least favorite teammate? <laughs> the question of the day. Uh, <laughs> least favorite teammate. This is going to take me a second to think through. Um, I'll say this. Mike Williams, the receiver out of USC. We were mm-hmm. drafted the same year. He was the big Mike wide receiver that lit college football on fire. Um, we were drafted in the same year, a year after he had sit and sat out. And Mike was as talented and gifted as anybody I had come across. Yeah, but I do not do well with lazy. Uh, no, a lot of people don't, but I don't mm. do well with lazy. And Mike was so lazy. And it was one of those, you hear the saying, like you had the world by the balls or you had, you know, everything is presented to you on a platter. All, had, all you had to do was take it. Mike was that guy. Like everything was there for him. And he just was too lazy to take it. And so for that reason, that makes me, I don't, I'm, I don't do well with that. Yeah. I, I can't stand that either. When you've got this incredible gift, I'm also the world's most competitive human. So I'm not lazy, like playing darts at a bar. So I wouldn't be lazy if I got the opportunity no doubt. to play at the high level. Who's your favorite coach? I got two. I can't give you one. Um, one, Gary Kubiak. Gary Kubiak is one of my all-time favorites. Coops uh, had this way where he would ask you for nothing but demand everything out of you. Um, one of the great speech givers, I, I'll go play for this guy anywhere, anytime. Totally changed my viewpoint on how important the quarterback was and how impactful it was in the organization. And every day of that role was a big deal. Um, and then Jim Caldwell in Detroit. Jim, Coach Caldwell's story 2011, like you mentioned, we're playing. I'm starting. We're not a great team, but we win some games at the end. It's our last game of the year in Jacksonville. My wife gave birth to triplet boys on Tuesday of that week. And so I was home till Wednesday, practice, whatnot. We go play the game. I break my ankle and do ligament damage at halftime. It's one of those, like, just tape it up, right? Just tape it up, and I'm going to play. So we finish the game. I'm done on crutches after the game. I'm walking to the airport. I fly home, and about three weeks later, actually 18 days later, I remember exactly when, I get a number from a, um, a call from a number that I don't have in my phone, and it's Jim Caldwell. <clears throat> I go, hey, what's up? And he goes, hey, it's Coach Caldwell. And I immediately think, like, oh, he's going to call me to ask me about my ankle or ask me about football or whatnot. And he goes, I just wanted to call and see how your wife and your kids were doing. And uh, for that reason, like, that's Coach Caldwell in a 30-second snippet. Like, he is an incredible, incredible man and uh, all-time favorite of mine. That's awesome. Uh, Least favorite coach? On the spot. Um, (laughs) I'd probably say – I'd probably say Greg Schiano. Strictly because it seemed that the NFL was not was not for him, you know, I, I really well an accomplished college coach, but did not get the NFL world. Did not get that you couldn't treat everybody that was he was no longer were you dealing with just eighteen to twenty one year olds or something like that. 
you were dealing with 28, 29, 30-year-olds, and you had to be able to adjust, and it just didn't seem that there was that, uh, in a way, pliability to adjust with we're not college that's needed because you're still shaping men. In the NFL, you're not necessarily shaping men as much anymore as, as many of them. And so for that reason, I'd probably say my least favorite just because the, uh, I couldn't adapt and be pliable to the situation. Yeah. Um, you know, I realize it's not always money, and it happens in our industry too, right, where like some talent, radio talent who makes $3 million reports to a boss who makes significantly less or – a superstar diva player who makes millions and millions reports to a coach who makes significantly less. That balance is really hard and treating professional rich men like college players or amateurs is just never going to work. It's just not going to, no, not gonna no shot. I mean, guys, you know, a lot of the, a lot of the time it's a, about re, just the respect thing. Like, do I respect you enough not to do it? I don't know if it's an ill mannered thing for some right. coaches, but it's just the respect of, handling your business in a way. And I get it because coaches are so reliant on their players' performance for their jobs, but um, <clears throat> it, it, that was something that was just evident to be struggled with. Yeah. Uh, what was your least favorite exercise or drill? Running, like like <laughs> doing inside run, we would call it, or nine on seven. Is that like wind sprints where... or more like long long distance? No, this is like an actual drill in football practice where you would have just your offensive line versus the defensive line for a whole period of practice, like 12 plays, and you would just hand the ball off. And you'd be like, dude, this is brutal. Oh, so um, not running. That's an actual okay. like, practice thing. No, no, but my least favorite like workout type thing is anything to do with like upper body strength. I'm built like a 12-year-old swimmer, so um, <laughs> like my upper – like. To, for me to get under a bench press as a kid was an embarrassing moment. No, I love to run um, just because I'm weird. Like I want, when I work out and I still am like this now, like I want to get to the point of, of uh, physical pain. Um, right. So I like, I like pushing myself mentally um, when it comes to workouts, unless it has to do with the upper body. <laughs> um. All right, so you you retire, and did you immediately know, even towards the end, before you'd officially retired, that you wanted to get into broadcasting? Yeah, for the most part. I like, had always thought about it. It was either going to be broadcasting or coaching and whatnot. I wanted to have a job. I'm not wired to sit at home. Um, so I, I, it was very much so high on my list, and, and it was just I, I, I kind of mis, misrepresented the opportunity. Like I was like, oh, there's so many avenues out there. Once I'm done playing, I'm a quarterback. I'll have people knocking on my door left and right, and that wasn't the case. Um, so I, I kind of misinterpreted how it would go. But, yeah, I, I always kind of had interest in doing it. And so did you reach out for advice from others? Did you uh, did you get a significant amount of training from ESPN, or how did the first uh, you know couple efforts go? Yeah, no, I didn't really. So I went to the, the NFL's broadcast boot camp, and – that was in 2014 I went to it. And then I went to it again in, in the spring of 2017, 2018, actually. Um, you know, I got done playing in 2017. And I started doing stuff on social media and breaking down plays and whatnot, and that kind of gathered some momentum. That gave me opportunities to get on some other networks and go do and just work for free and grind. And, you know, every time I went on, people that I respected – were very complimentary and they were complimentary in a way like, no, 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 you're differently good at this. And so I went to broadcast boot camp in the spring of 18 with one very clear goal. Like I was going to go, I wasn't there to make friends. I wasn't there necessarily to learn a ton. I was there to make it very clear that I was the best at it and someone needed to come get me. Right. And from after that, uh, that's when doors got open for me. Like, uh, ESPN called and I had to go up there and meet with people and audition and NFL network offered and then CBS came and then Fox came and whatnot. So that's kind of one of those things that uh, springboarded a little bit and then getting on, like I talked about getting on some of those grind sessions where um, you, know, you had the opportunity to go to kind of show who you were and take advantage of it. And I didn't get a ton of training or, or I didn't get any from ESPN. It was just like, Hey, go. Right. And, um, and well, sometimes and that's the case, and then sometimes know. you know they send people through a pretty 
rigorous amount if they don't have a natural affinity or if they're good and then they want them to take a massive step to be great. Um, one thing it feels like former athletes have to choose pretty early on as analysts is do I protect the people that I used to be or do I criticize with the knowledge that I have from being there, right? And there's sure. there's a middle ground for sure. There are people who, you know, make make a habit of attacking and then there are people who will never say anything bad, right? Uh, so there's a middle yeah. ground. Did you have to make that decision consciously or is it more natural for you to just, you know, in the moment decide whether you want to offer up the hard truth or a little softened version? No, I, I, I think it's a little bit of both. You know, I look at it like this, Sarah. I, there's plenty of people out there being super negative all the time. Like, there's, we talked about it with social media. Like, there's plenty of people out there telling everybody how much everybody sucks. Um, I'm not going to be that guy. Like, I'm never going to be that guy. My thing with this role that I'm in is, like, I want people to understand the game more and have fun with learning it more. I want people to understand that, listen, there's Bill Belichick's a great coach, but there's other great coaches, and Tom Brady's a great player. But there's other great players. And my thing is like getting people to understand it a little bit better so we don't have those. And I'm not trying to take away people's fan experience or love, but like we don't have the extremes where, man, this guy effing stinks or this guy's the greatest player we've ever seen in our life. You know, trying to get people to be educated on it. And I have a lot of fun doing it. Um, I have no issues being honest. I have no issues calling it like it is. Some people don't agree and all that stuff, but like, um, I'll never cross the friendship barrier. I never will. I, that if that, I, I'm never going to um, criticize somebody um, for who they are. I might say, hey, this guy's not playing well or whatnot. But I'll never, never, never cross the friendship barrier because those are those are relationships that you no dollar sign can replace. Now, how many of them do I have? Very little. Um, count on one hand, but I'll never cross that. No. Right. Yeah. And the issue there is, you know, there's friendships and then there's relationships. And part of what you're hired for is your experiences and your 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 perspective because of those. And so you have a situation like with Ryan Clark talking about Antonio Brown, where people criticize Ryan. And he says, listen, man, I have a lot more I could be sharing. I'm sharing the tip of the iceberg because it's necessary for this conversation that's a tough situation to be put in, right? Where you have a lot of inf- insight about a player, their work ethic, their off the field issues, anything else, and it and it's relevant and necessary to the conversation. But you're tiptoeing around it because there's this like code of conduct. Well, yeah, it's a great point. I actually texted Ryan after it, and I and I kind of just encouraged him because I saw a couple people go after him. Not a couple, plenty. My my um my statement or my thing that I would say to people is this. If you want to turn on ESPN and listen to people talk about football and give you insight about football, there's going to be two sides to the coin at times. And we can't sit there and rave about a guy and go, man, listen, I've been in the locker room with this guy. He's as good of a teammate as you could ever get. I remember this one time where he did this, 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 and this. And we give that insight, share that insight. And then there's going to be other times where we we share some stuff that – we give insight of, okay, this, I'm, I'm telling you, I've been around this guy. This is the, this is what's happening here. This is the case. It can't just be a one-sided sharing of insight. And just because you may not like it or just because you may not agree with it doesn't mean that it's inaccurate or over the line. I don't believe that Ryan said anything that um, attacked somebody. He just shared uh, a story within a moment of about somebody. He didn't talk about somebody's uh, uh, long-standing character. He talked about right. a moment. And I believe that because if we're going to do the other side of it, there's going to be times where like I I I'm from I played in Detroit. People think that I'm just this Matthew Stafford, he'll never say anything negative about him guy. And I try to tell people like, "No, no, no. I don't need to sit here and tell you guys that Matthew did not have the season he wanted to this year. That he did not play as well as he wanted to." Matthew's going to tell you that. I don't, I, I, that's obvious, but I'm also going to tell you why, like why it happened. And you have to be honest about that as well. Yeah, for sure. And, and I think, you know, there are people that you're going to have a lot of good stories about if they're a good person and they work hard, you know what I mean? And yeah, so it's not, exactly. it's so not if I'm going to share that, <laughs> right, if I'm exactly. share that then, yeah, I've got to be, I, I've got, it's got to be okay for me, me to share the stuff that you don't like as well. Right. 
What's it like? And one of my favorite uh, things about Levitard is uh, he just, you know, bears sort of the soul of, of the reality of sports radio and analysis in a way that a lot of people don't want to. They want to cover up for flaws. And I think it's safe to say there are a lot of people on radio and TV that don't know how to break down football. And I don't blame those of us who can't. We didn't line up in it. I was never even given the chance to, right? You, you, I mean, I guess mm-hmm. there are there are girls that that work their way onto a football team to kick or otherwise, but that that was not an opportunity presented to me or that I thought I could do. So I've never lined up on a football field. It feels very different to me watching football than basketball, where I was on a court for years of my life, and I understand uh, the, everyone's responsibilities. So a lot of us don't overstep our bounds if we aren't able to, right? We bring on the experts, and then we talk about the things we do know. There are certainly some people who decide to maybe overstep their their knowledge base. What does that feel like for somebody, especially at a quarterback position, who had to know more than probably anybody on the field in terms of breaking down offenses and defenses, being able to read the field, when you listen to the average kind of sports radio talk about football? Well, um, I, I, I think they're both valuable. You know, I... I wouldn't have a job if there wasn't the people that just calling in sports radio and talking about football. Like I, I wouldn't be necessary because if it, you know, if anybody could do it, um, then anybody could do it. There wouldn't be the, I don't want to say, but there wouldn't be the experienced analyst that can kind of give you layers and details. And so um, there, I live in Philadelphia and so everybody in Philadelphia, and I love the people of Philly. My brother-in-law is one of them. He thinks he knows more football than anybody in the history of the world. But that's what makes the sports great. That's what makes <laughs> passionate fan bases great is that they are so invested. Um, I, there's a very fine balance between going like, no, you're an idiot, or going, I get where you're coming from, but let me just holler at you about this. Like, Let me spin it for you to understand it in this kind of light or get you to understand it in this way. And that's something that I have a lot of fun doing. So I, I think there's parts that, that both are valuable. And there's when you, the biggest thing is like, are there people who can have legit discussions? Like, are there people that can actually go, you know, you know what? You're right. I'm wrong. And then are we as people who are paid to, to teach and talk about and give insight to, are we uh, mature and egotistically ego, egoless enough to go, Oh, you know what? As a fan, that's a good point. Like you bring up a good point, and maybe that vantage point changes the way I look at it. Right. What's the end goal for you? What would be sort of like the dream broadcast gig? World dominant. Um, <laughs> yeah, I mean, the dream broadcast gig is is to be able to be doing one of the premier shows, the premier games every week, whether it's a Monday night football or a Sunday night football. I don't ever want to not do one. I don't ever want to not do games or not do studio. I like them both. I love them both. And so I want to have my hand in both of them. Um, but yeah, for certainly to be one of those guys that when you talk, people um, for the majority learn. Uh, people for the majority, their ears peak up. People from the majority of the time go, I want to listen to this, what guys think, and just have a ton of fun with it. Like, uh, I have learned that like, people want to have fun. Like people watch sports to have fun and they want to, they want to learn. There's no doubt about it. And there's pockets for that, but they also want to have fun. They want to feel like you're part of them. You're, you're with them on it. Um, and so I, I the dream is to be able to do that. At one of those, one of those big shows. Do you still have any thoughts of coaching? Um, sure. Uh, every day. Um, I don't really? think that'll ever leave me. Um, I thoroughly enjoy coaching, um, every uh, hundreds to thousands to however many people are watching, whatever's going on. Like I, I, uh, I thoroughly enjoy that. Um, the biggest reason is for every coach that I've been around that it's worked out where they haven't had to move a ton of times and, um, they're, you know, they're home with their families. I know 99 who don't have that. And, um, for me, it, the, the time with my wife and kids is significantly greater than anything that that world can give me right now. And so um, I, I, I really like being a part of television. I really do. Uh, how old are your kids now? Would you be able to coach them? Yeah, I do. I, I, we, I coach them in baseball. I have seven-year-old triplet sons, and then I have a three-year-old daughter. So I, don't, I can't coach them in football, obviously, because the fall time. But 
I uh, coached the coach the spring and summer stuff. That's uh, triplet sons. Oh God, this this just wait till mm. puberty and just the smells when when they're not. It's already we're already there. Oh, we're man. already there. Stinky I go shoes. I go to them all the time. Like, dude, y'all stink. Like y'all stink, <laughs> man. So. Oh, I love it. Uh, before I let you go, you got to do the one thing that everybody does, but nobody expects. Didn't expect a kind of Spanish Inquisition. <laughs> nobody expects the Spanish Inquisition. That's right. It's the speed round everybody does and nobody expects. Number one, what's the natural talent you wish you were gifted with? The ability to sing. <laughs> Join the club, man. That's everyone's answer. Uh, number two, Desert Island album. You can only have one. Mm, island. No, your Desert Island album. It's an album. You can only oh, pick one album on if you get stuck island. on a desert island. Yeah. I was stranded on a desert island album. Uh, anything Kenny Chesney. Interesting. Okay. Uh, if you could switch lives with anyone for a day, who would it be? <sighs> I would say <clears throat> the greatest chef in the world. Interesting. I don't, know who that, I don't necessarily who that is, but I would love to be able to cook a meal that blew people's minds. That's awesome. Uh, what's the favorite meal you've ever had? Something like that? Um, my favorite meal ever is from Pietro's in New York City, Chicken Farm. All right. Uh, number four, what's the most scared you've ever been? Oh, my goodness. Uh, most scared I've ever been. <laughs> a little secret, I am deathly afraid of the dark. Like, any <laughs> dark. And so um, most deathly, most scared I've ever been is probably like last night at 10 p.m. when I walked up the stairs and it was dark in my house. I mean, I do not do dark <laughs> at all. So What do you like think is out so, there? Uh, exactly. There's an opportunity. <laughs> we live in a weird world right now. Um, any, any time it's dark, like pitch dark, I don't care where I am. I am in a very bad state, so it doesn't happen often to me because I will, like, whip out my cell phone immediately and put on the flashlight. Do you have just night lights everywhere in the house? I don't fall asleep without lights on. So we have – I'll leave oh a God, light on. Oh, my God, I would murder you. Um, I have to have The television black. on. Uh, there's always lights on <laughs> in our house, wife. no doubt. Sorry, sorry, <laughs> energy people. Uh, number five, what's the most embarrassed you've ever been? <laughs> um, most embarrassed I've ever been – the Minnesota play is not that far off. Uh, <laughs> I think that's probably it. I mean, certainly there's probably been some situations with some girls in my past, like college time, where I did or said something that was stupid, but that's probably up there. Uh, what would you consider your biggest failure? Mm. That hasn't happened yet. Mm. My my biggest yeah. failure would be my biggest failure – the only big failure that I would ever think of as a big failure in my life would be um, if I failed as a husband or a dad. Um, other than that, I, uh, failures are part of life. Everyone has them, so I can't quantify them because I think they're incredibly useful. Yeah. Um, that's a lot of successful people say, which is good. I think if you if you get stuck in them, that's probably part of the reason that you can't you know move on to, to other things. Uh, number seven, what habit or quality do you think has contributed most to your success? My work ethic, um, obsession to detail and work ethic are calling cards of mine. They've been since I was a kid, and uh, they touch every facet of my life. That's a good one. Uh, have you ever been in a fist fight? Oh, yeah. Yeah. I've you been in a couple that were not in my favor either. I got, I got into a fist, my, fist fight my freshman year of high school uh, with the starting quarterback of our high school football team. Um, I handled it pretty good. And then I got to a fist fight at Assumption College in Boston with a couple of buddies um, that were up uh, up enjoying the college life, I guess, if we want to call that. Um, and I got whooped. Uh, but <laughs> thankfully, my buddy who played linebacker went into a different world with his mind and uh, certainly had my back. Okay. Uh, recent fist fights, or have you put those in your past? No, heck no. I no, no recent fistfights. I I haven't had the opportunity nor the need or something to, to justify it. Good. Glad to hear it. Uh, number nine, what's the thing about yourself you'd most like to improve? My consistency off the tee box in my golf game would be awesome. <laughs> um, playing from the grass is much, much easier. 
And then um, that really uh, probably being more present, uh, be more in the moment in conversations with people, you know, because so much going on in head and thinking forward. I'm a big picture thinker. And so maybe just, you know, my wife is great at sporadic, not sporadic, but spontaneous um, adventures. I, uh, right. I'd like to be more consistent with that. I like that. Yeah, that's hard for a lot of us, especially with technology now. It's becoming more mm-hmm. and more important to decide that you want to be present. And if you just force yourself for like a half hour not to be able to look at your phone and see how much you're aware of things around you and people and you see stuff and you're like, oh, man, I never do this anymore. And those yeah. of us that were alive before the cell phone had every piece of information on the planet on it, like we used to just be more aware of life. No doubt. Stuff. No doubt. Um, number 10, what three words would you most hope people would use to describe you? Mm. Man of integrity. Hmm. They don't have to be a, a statement, but I like that one. It's very good. It's good. Thanks. Um, and Thanks. then your bonus question, who should I have on the podcast? Does it have to be an athlete? Nope. It can be anybody. Um. Who should you have on the podcast? I find it, I love as an athlete, I love learning about people from other sports and kind of how they go about their sport. If you have the ability to get like one of these young hot golfers, okay. you know, on, on your podcast, I I think that'd be really cool because golf is a sport I love, um, but it is so transferable to life and those guys have to be so ridiculously mentally strong moment by moment and so if you were able to get like a i mean there's so many young stars right now a fowler a camera yeah. champ or a jason like Dye or, a lot no speed i mean those uh, that those that would be something i'd be fascinating and just kind of how they how they go about their life like i play golf a, 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 i love golf and i love walking golf but after I get done walking 18 holes of golf that are for fun, I'm tired. Yeah. These cats do it four days in a row with yeah. their livelihoods on the line. Um, and so I'd be fascinated just how they go about it. Yeah, I completely agree. I haven't had any golfers. That's a good one. Hey, there nice talking to you. Thanks for coming on. Thank you for having me. It was a pleasure. Oh, and another thing. This week's That's What She Read is actually like a full website, not one story. And this woman, Tanika Johnson, spoke at an event for Embark, which I'm on the board for serving underserved Chicago high schoolers and giving them opportunities to learn about culture, job opportunities, and explore Chicago in ways that they might not outside of their own neighborhood. And Tanika was at our event talking about something that she started called the Folded Map Project, where she takes... Uh, addresses on one side of Chicago and matches them to addresses on the same side on the same street on the other side of Chicago, north and south, and shows the differences in neighborhoods, opportunities and resources, and then tries to introduce the people to connect to each other and, and share experiences and understand the city better. It's such a great idea and such a fascinating study. So I recommend going to uh, you can just uh, search folded map project or you can go to um, Tanika Johnson's website and kind of learn more about it because um I think it's really noticeable in Chicago, one of the most segregated cities in our country, but everywhere, really, the importance more now than ever of um, being less divided, of understanding the experiences and perspectives of people different from us. And if it takes um, a kind of a creative project like this to get you to step outside your own neighborhood and meet people different from you, that's a great start. So, again, it's called the Folded Map Project. Uh, Check it out. And thanks, as always, for lasting about an hour with me. That's what she said.